0: Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. First of all I must apologize that we've been on off air for I think about three weeks. That was a combination of traveling, uh, diary clashes and a variety of issues but I can assure you that we are back. We've not, we didn't die, we've not been arrested, we are still on earth. So first of all co hosted with me, as usual, is Phoenix, and then our other guest is Samuel Atiku. Atiku is a public policy consultant with the International Budget Partnership. Now, we're also discussing three topics today. First of all, we'll discuss this $22 trillion debt that Nigeria appears to have taken on, and we'll be discussing how, how we've, we've come to this point. Secondly, we'll look at the upcoming battle in the Nigerian National Assembly over their leadership, both of the Senate and the House of Representatives. And thirdly, we'll discuss Peter Obi and Atikwa Bubaka's case before the Nigerian Electoral Tribunal. But before we go there, we also have to pay tribute to our guests. I'm just looking at my notes, it appears the last time we were here was on the 17th of April, if that's correct. And our guest on that podcast was Peter Enahuro, the legendary journalist. And I think literally a week or a week and a half after that podcast, he sadly died. So we just want to pay tribute to him, send our condolences to his family and just hope, I think we asked him on the podcast that we asked him if if this was the Nigeria of his dreams and he said it, it wasn't. So. Perhaps we can, we can pray and hope that someday uh, the Nigeria of his dreams will be actualized. But anyway, so to Phoenix for our first topic. Phoenix, 22 trillion naira in debt. Look, can, can you explain to us, as if you are talking to primary one economic students, how did Nigeria acquire this debt? Where does this debt come from? And why is it only, only just now being approved by the National Assembly? What what, what happened, Felix?
1: Hi, Michael. Um, great to be back. Um, thanks, Artigul, for joining us. Hello, listeners. We've seen all of your messages and even though some people are dragging us, uh, we welcome that because it, it just shows that there are people out there listening to us and, and keen for the podcast to remain. So, and we promise you, we remain as fired up as, as ever. And uh, we intend to continue sharing our views. Um, I, I can't but join uh, Michael in sending our condolences to the family of Parinaro. We We are especially grateful that he spent his time with us. He joined us on the podcast twice. And uh, when we learned of his passing away, I mean, uh, it was quite a poignant moment for us. And and I pray that his soul finds rest, and uh, and um, his family find the strength, the love, and the fortitude to bear the loss. He is an irreparable loss to to Nigeria, uh, particularly the journalism profession. I mean, those were those people who really set the profession apart and the latter day, people can learn can do well to learn from from their legacy. Having said that, um, <laughs> to our topic, our first topic today, um, so, so Michael says I should try and explain it like I'm explaining to a primary one person. I think the easiest way to do so is to say, um, the Nigerian got, well, the central bank of Nigeria, right? Um, is also not, not has a number of functions. So one of those functions is being the banker to the federal government, which basically means that any revenues that accrue to the government goes to the central bank. Now, of course, if you understand banking, when you when you have an account with a bank, you put your money in there, but it also means that the relationship you have with the bank allows you to borrow from the bank. So you're able to go to your bank where you normally put your money and and say to them, you can see my income that comes to your bank. I want to borrow. Maybe I want to buy a house. Maybe I want to buy a car. Maybe I want to do an Oambe party because I'm feeling good about myself. But you can generally go to your bank and borrow. And so the same thing happens. The federal government goes to the central bank to borrow from time to time. Um, when there is a shortfall and they need to augment income um, to make sure that they can meet their expenses. Now, the CBN is set up under an act of the National Assembly. So there's a CBN Act. And in that CBN Act, it prescribes the level of borrowing that the central bank can give to the the federal government. And it's important to, to bear that in mind because if, if there is no limit, if there's no guidelines around how the, central bank, how the federal government can borrow from the central bank, very quickly, you get into a scenario where the central bank, because it has the power to create money, the central bank literally I mean, creates money in the sense that they, I mean, they can create deposits out of nothing. They can print the Naira and, and they determine the level of money supply in the economy, which is, another, which is another one of their more critical functions. They can basically just enable money be available to government, whether the, what the government is it for makes sense or not. And that has a knock on effect on, uh, on, uh, on the economy from a perspective of, I mean, when you have a, an economy that is flush with cash, It devalues assets. Number one, number two, it creates inflation because what you do have end up having is you have a lot of money chasing few goods and services, and prices go up, and that is bad for the average Nigerian, bad for business, and so on and so forth. So I say all of that to provide context as to Federal Government can borrow money from Central Bank, but you have to borrow it up to a certain limit, and if I remember correctly, I think it's uh, maximum. Of uh, three or five percent of previous year's income, so they, they set it at a very reasonable level. I'm sure Atiku will have the right number and he will speak when when he will correct me if I'm wrong. But the, to the 22 trillion that we now have, what has happened is over the eight years that Buhari has been in charge, they've relied so heavily on the uh, on the central bank for for backstopping their revenues and to enable them make the expenses that they need to make to the extent that they've racked up 22 trillion in debt owed by the federal government to the central bank. So over eight years they built this up and for context. Nigeria's total debt stock, excluding this 22 trillion is 46 trillion. So basically what, they're, what you're saying is that almost half of the debt that the that the country owes, this um, money that they owe the uh, the central bank is like literally almost half of what they owe. So when you add what they owe the central bank to their debt that they are carrying, that's that's like um, going from forty six to almost seventy trillion naira. That's huge. So what you have is. The, the federal, the number one, it is clear because if you look at the quantum of debt that we're talking about, it's clear that the put the, the the central bank essentially has been going against the law that set it up because it has obviously been borrowing money more than the limit that was set. So there's a clear issue there, but this money is now sitting on the balance sheet of the fed of this of the central bank, and this is not correct. It is creating a distortion. And because it is not being recorded as debt by the DMO, it is also, even though there's some interest being charged, it is also not being fully recognized. So what they are trying to do is to regularize that by saying, look, this is debt that the federal government has incurred. It has to pay it back. And so for that reason, it must move this money to I acknowledge this as a proper loan, securitize it, you know, with a plan for 9% interest to be repaid over 40 years, and it now becomes part of our overall debt. Now that has implications because once it's recognized as your overall debt and you're growing your debt by 50% all at once, <clears throat> there are implications around you know ratings. I mean, your Risk rating and things like that, that that will have impact not just on the federal government but also on on um, businesses in Nigeria and all of that because your sovereign risk rating affects people who also how Tanzania is looked at and things like that so so there are a lot of things to look at but where we are is that the federal government has approached the National Assembly to let them take on this debt. My understanding as of now is that this has not been fully signed off because there was some pushback and there's ongoing discussion. So basically that's, that's where we are. That's the story of the 22 trillion. And And uh, I'll go back to you, Michael.
0: Thank you, Phoenix, for your explanation. I'll just go to Atiku. Atiku, I've got a series of questions that I need answering from you. So the, the the first question, Atiku, is Phoenix said that whilst the proposal has been put to the legislature to con- to securitize, as they call it, to convert this overdraft into a loan, the Senate or the legislature have yet to approve it. The question then, Atiku, is if the Senate re- if the legislature refused to approve this debt, what then happens? Is it just money hanging in the air, or what is the question of that? Uh,
2: interesting question, Michael. I think whether we like it or not, I mean, the debt is in the books already. Uh, just for context, when we say public debt, it's only debt that is securitized. Um, so the numbers that the DMO, the Debt Management Office, actually banish. Around, and for debt, they are securitized, and so what it means in essence is that it just means that uh, it's the debt that a certificate that been issued to the the person that actually borrowed the federal government money. So typically, it's something that can be you could trans you could sell it out. Essentially, you could go on an exchange and then exchange it. You can use that as collateral in banks to actually uh, borrow more money. And uh, so, Michael, back to your question. Uh, so we have two types of debts. We have the public debt that have been securitized, and then we have the ones that have not been securitized. I mean, just for context, I know everybody is talking about this uh, $23 naira waste and means, essentially the central bank uh, borrowing the federal government money. Uh, that's just the tiny, I would still call it a tiny bit of a bigger problem. We still have debts that the federal government owes contractors. That's not in the books. We have judgment debts that are still hanging in there, that's not been securitized. And then we still have other obligations. Uh, what I call pension obligations. Remember, people are retiring. We have an aging, I mean, we have an aging uh, civil service. Most of the people in the civil service now about retiring. Remember, the federal government have not been recruiting young young people. So most of them will start retiring, I think, from next year. I think within the space of um, six years, about 95% of Nigerian civil service will enter into their retirement age. And meaning that their obligations will actually meet their pensions also. And then we still have other debt that the federal government is owing in. I'll call it special funds. So we can go on and on and on around how indebted. Uh, the federal government is, but Mike, back to your question. So, if the Senate refuse to securitize, that's absolutely no <laughs> no effect in terms of the outlook for the Nigerian uh, economy itself and the fiscal uh, the fiscal structure of public finance. If we securitizing it, actually, gives the federal government some wiggle rooms uh, to manoeuvre. In essence, you can't. You could as well say, "Oh, it's nine percent." debt. So those debts, 9%. But for now, I think we're accruing about, uh, is it 3% plus NPR on those ways and means, if I'm right. So if NPR, for instance, now is about 10%, you have 10 plus 3%, which is 13%. So if the federal government says, let's securitize this at the 9%, uh, it's, it helps you reduce the cost that you will have spent uh, servicing those debts. Uh, so Michael, in terms of uh, whether this has uh, any effect on the fiscal uh, state that we find ourselves, the answer is no, it has no effect whatsoever. We're in a deep hole, and to actually mine out, out of this hole, we need a lot of ladders.
0: Thank you, Achiku. So that's my first question. The second question is, as Phoenix also explained, these loans or this, this overdraft from the central bank was taken in violation of Nigerian law. So the question is, is there a penalty for this? Should are there Mefile, Buhari or the finance minister? Uh, I, I can you is her name, Zainab? Is that the finance minister's name? Um, I can't believe But I don't seem to remember her name. But shouldn't one of them be prosecuted for breaching the law? Yeah, I think that's
2: one of the key things um, that um, I will say, I will lay it on, I will will approach this based on two perspectives. I think the first perspective is the weakness of civil society. I recall in 2017 when this old Ways and Means started gathering pace. I recall going on Twitter and complaining about it. And I recall that time that Tolu Bliss specifically actually even took it too far, that he started attacking my personality. Um, I'm a doomsday player. Oh, this is actually a lie. I mean, it's there, a public record, you can go and check. Uh, what I was saying, I had no knowledge of what I was saying, A, B, C, D. In fact, they took it to the extent of um, even trying to write my former employer, uh, they took it to that extent. Now, Ali, it's important to mention that when the Buhari government took over, we were in, we are having what the then-Coordinating Minister of the Economy termed a fiscal strain. Oil price had gone down. We were struggling as a country. And she was saying, oh, we need to actually raise our tax base. We need to increase tax. She was trying to introduce wealth tax. He was trying to actually prop up our domestic uh, resources to mitigate the potential impact of aggressively borrowing funds, given the fact that we had a massive infrastructure deficit. And so at that time, Nigeria's total debt was 12 trillion. naira. 12 trillion, mile. just for context, last year, Nigeria spent about 20, 12 trillion <laughs> on the budget. It was 12 trillion. And then everybody was panicking. We had a whole lot of papers that we wrote on the potential. In fact, I know people did criticize the past, the outgoing government then, of being fiscally responsible for putting Nigeria in the 12 trillion debt. Today, officially, we are now on 46. When you add the 23, and then the other outstanding, we are getting close to about 80 trillion. Now, if you take that eighty-three trillion naira as face value, that the money that the Buhari government borrowed, and then you add it up to the revenue, it means that the Buhari government has spent over 112 trillion between 2015 and now. Well, if you put up your calculator and you say, okay, what's the average cost of building a house in Nigeria? The average cost about 10 million naira, so essentially the Guari government would have used this money to construct close to 10 million new buildings. It was a 10 million new building, just for context, in the UK, England, Wales, Scotland put together, the complete, the total amount of houses you have here in the UK is 25 million. So we'll have built a new modern city of half the size of the United Kingdom with this money. But this money was used for what? It was used for nothing significant. In fact, with this massive pumping of this money to the economy, we've had a situation whereby the total number of jobs in Nigeria had gone down, inflation rate had hit the roof, the income of the people had been degraded, most businesses are struggling, and so there's no economic impact whatsoever this money had had. So, my take here is that the first stage is that the weakness of the civil society to hold this government accountable. They left them to ride on, should be blamed for where we find ourselves. That's my first point, first priority. You see all these economists now jumping out and trying to antagonize, uh, what's his name? Uh, The presidential candidate of the Labour Party, trying to look at his his manifesto. All of them were silent for eight years when this economy was bleed to death. All of a sudden, they rose up and they started writing series of articles. They should be held accountable for what has happened. The, the media houses—they all left it too late. I think they were just busy running after after advert money. They did not do their job. They did not hold this government accountable. For the few that try to hold this government accountable, they label most of us as actually being irresponsible. They took the war to our employers. They made sure that they tried what they could do to silence people, and the repercussion is here now for everybody. See. So, Mike, to your question back, what has happened? I'll say it's a failure of the Nigerian people that the people that we should have hold this government accountable, they fail to hold them accountable, and that's where we find that's why we find ourselves where we are. Thank you,
0: Archiko. My final question before we go to the next topic is, the legislature is made up of opposition parties as well. You have the PDP there, you have the APC, and I think there's somebody from the, no, APC is the ruling party. So the PDP. You have somebody, I think, from the YPP, the Young People's Party. So did the opposition make any noise about these when, the, when these things were happening? And even with regards to the ruling party itself, you mean the, the Senate president, the speaker, all knew about these illegal borrowings and they were fine with it?
2: I mean, that's exactly what, again, it's again, uh, The role of the legislator is actually to pay oversight. I know, yeah, people eye-pops are being fantastic. Remember, under his watch in 2018, 2019, uh, before the election in 2019, the Ways and Means actually did rise by almost five trillion naira in a year. And no conversation, even when people write. I recall writing the National Assembly. They did nothing about it. And it's important to also mention: I mentioned 112 trillion, 112 trillion that Buhari government has spent. The legislator themselves personally consume about 10% of that. I mean, sorry, about 1.17% of that one, 1. 1.5 trillion. Using it on their own largest itself. So they are also culpable in order to do So it's not even the context of whether you are a PDP, the people is the opposition, or you are an APC. I think one way or the other, the Nigerian political class, they tend to fold themselves together. They tend to be in a, in a single group. And, and that's remiss them. If you look back at ENSAS, did you see PDP legislators actually going on the floor to complain about the atrocity that was committed? By the Nigerian police, in Nigerian army. Absolutely not. That's not their business. Have you seen them complain about the killing that is going on in the Middle Belt? Of, of course, they are not concerned about that. So, the context of um, opposition and the role the legislators should play uh, in ensuring that there's oversight over the actions of the executive seems to have fallen. It's all about police. For, I mean, <laughs> I don't use too many uh, grammars and speak grammar. The truth is that we've not had principled people in the National Assembly. Even if we have one or two, their voice has been subsumed such that we've got into a point whereby oversight is just mere talk. I mean, go to the building or go to the National Assembly and see what is there. All the old lawns are overgrown. In fact, to get into the National Assembly, you see how tattered the whole place look like. Uh, despite the fact that they spend over 150 billion, remember, <laughs> over 150 billion every year doing what? Uh, so, I mean, and that's just the budget, that's just the national budget. If you, leave, if you leave the national budget, remember, the budget of Nigeria that we talk about is just a fraction of public spending. If you look at all those independent agencies, things like Nemasa, organizations like um, the Nigerian Port Authority, they run like a separate system of government themselves. So if you aggregate all those things together and you see the kind of larges and then the spending that is going on in Nigeria without any meaningful impact, whatsoever. I mean, we share tears for the country. And my final take here is just to say that, yes, I don't trust the public. I mean, I don't trust them. I don't trust the legislators to hold anybody accountable. I see them as just one of the same thing. I mean, you can see the conversation going on now. The executive wants to actually have a say on who gets elected. And then you see people also rally around that. And then the concentration for electing people winds around ethnicity and religion, not competence. I think I rest my case.
0: Thank you, uh, Atiku, for your contributions. Now to the next topic, which is for you, Phoenix. The National Assembly uh, seems to be at war already because they're going to be leaving the scene, or the current members are going to be leaving the scene on the 29th of May, and in new set those who were re-elected and those who were newly elected are going to be taking their seats. The, From what I understand, the... APC has zoned, they call it zoning, which is where you allocate leadership to various parts of the country. The APC has picked who they want as the Senate president and the speaker, but people are not happy. So, Phoenix, can you explain to us why are the APC members unhappy about who have the the individuals chosen to be Senate president and speaker of the House?
1: Michael, I mean, there's a statement I wanted to make. I I forget exactly how it goes, but, but the essence is that, um, the essence is that you cannot you cannot bring something good out of something bad, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> and I've said it repeatedly on the podcast. The APC is is a desperately Bad party, a group of a collection of unscrupulous people who now, you know, now that it now that everybody has their own interests, they're now trying to, you know, some are crying foul, some are making it as if this is not, I mean, how things should be. You you, you this is a party that put forward a presidential ticket that ignored the proper way of doing things, in the, the accepted way of doing things in the country, where a country as diverse as ours with the kind of history that we have, with the kind of, you know, issues that we had with national cohesion and, you know, and tolerance and working together, this party ignored all of that and put forward a presidential ticket that not only ignored equity, so yes, they went south, but any right-thinking person will have realized that coming back south, after eight years of a Yoruba president, after eight years of a Yoruba vice president, you should have been going east. So, okay, you went south. But when you went south, you then ignored the second side of the coin, which is, I mean, we on one side, if if we're talking about uh, equity, and that's what that's what zoning is supposed to accomplish, you look at ethnicity, and then on the other side, you look at religion. But they put forward the same faith tickets, and told us that it did not matter. So now I'm wondering why all of a sudden, when they want to pick senate and and uh, when they want to pick national assembly leaders. Zoning is coming to the to the fore. Why does it now matter to to zone? Because they know that they, I mean they've done something on the basis of expediency, and now they are trying to course correct, and they're making they're making it as if they are trying to do something for Nigerians. When really, at the end of the day, it's all about you know in their interests, and the fact that this party is just has no has no ideology, has no there's no there's no sense of nationhood of trying to put the country first, of trying to, you know, soothe the the um, issues that we have. Because if that was to be the case, so okay, right now, ostensibly they have a president elect who is a southerner, southerner um, from the southwest and is a Muslim. They have a vice president who's a northerner from the northeast, is a Muslim. So one might say, okay, the first two offices of the land have gone south-north, north, and therefore you should go south again, and and then have north for, for the Speaker of the House, and, and you try to balance it that way. So, I mean, which is why it seemed like you know, when they chose, God to La Fabio, who is from the South-South and is a Christian, they were making all the right noises. But you see, you've created the issue already. So yes, some other people will rightfully challenge that because they were like, we we didn't care about zoning when we're looking at presidential candidate. Why is zoning now all of a sudden important? No. You can't put somebody who's just come or people who are just new and make them, you know, there are other people who have paid their dues and also want to have a crack at the at the office, so they will ch- they will challenge, and that's why they're having all the drama that is happening, and that's why they have all the issues that are happening, because you've you've set your foundation on 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 um, on on bad ground, on on a lack of respect for equity, on a lack of respect for justice. So you've you've made it open season, and said might will win. Corruption will win, all those things will happen. So you cannot now try to, you know, the genie is out of the bottle. So you have to live with. As you make your bed, you lie on it. You have, you've created that scenario. You know, tear yourselves apart and do whatever you you like, and that's what that's what's happening within the APC. And I'm not one; is not surprised because this is who they are. They, this party has not has brought Nigeria nothing but, but you know. The, um, I don't know why my words are failing me today, but th- that's just the way I feel about this despicable this, party. They've bought Nigeria nothing but suffering. And I mean, we we can look back at the last eight years and all that has happened. And one knows that, I mean, if this guy is, if, if the election petitions that are going through do not come to, to fruition, you can only look forward to a to an even worse uh four years ahead. So I say all of that to say, I'm not surprised. I mean, let them continue their dance. We'll see where it is. What, what will be important is to see if the other parties, you know, especially in the in the house of reps where they don't have the, the majority to have their way, if the other parties can challenge them and, and move, move things about to make it impossible for them to do whatever they need. But yeah, it's... it's
0: It is ABC. Thank you, Phoenix. I've got two questions to ask before I go to Atiku. So, the first is considering the character of the person who they are nominating as Senate President in the person of former Governor Godswill Akbabio, do you think he fits the character and competence profile to be President of Nigeria's Senate?
1: I think that's one of the easiest questions you've ever asked me. You know. God, God's should, under no circumstances, be anywhere near the top three offices of the land. I mean, his his character is. I mean, you're basically rewarding the worst of us. And and, and that that is very clear. So I mean, there's no need talking long story. This is somebody where who in a natural. Order in a place where the people's voice counts, in a place where we have, you know, proper democracy, a proper rule of law. We have a vibrant um, and responsible press. We have a strong um, civil society, as Atiku was saying, that holds um, leaders accountable. There's no There's no basis for this guy making it to to even
0: be in contention. Thank you, Phoenix. And then my second question is, a a number of politicians within the APC from the Northwest have made this argument that, because they provided most of the votes for Bolatinibu's victory, they deserve to be rewarded with the Senate presidency. In your view, is that argument a persuasive one?
1: It depends on who they're trying to persuade. I mean, if they're speaking to their party members, of course, it's a persuasive one. I mean, at the end of the day, their politics is about, is about, uh, is transactional. So, yes, I mean, within the APC, if the APC is going to be uh, sharing the spoils of war, as it were, you should give it to those who have contributed to the success of the party. So they have it absolutely within their party, yes. But to the wider Nigerian public, again, on the basis of equity and justice, there is no. I mean, if if what has already happened is to happen, then I mean, there's no there's no um, there's no basis for for the point that they're making. But well, this is the APC. So within the APC, yes, they should they should they should fight. <laughs> I mean, they they true equity to the dogs, and so they should they should live with it.
0: Thank you, Phoenix. But let me go to Samuel Atiku. Atiku, the first question is there's also a battle in the House of Representatives, and the person Bolatine was endorsed is someone we called tatu Dean. Abbas. so my first question is, do you know much about this fellow about his background?
2: Well uh, that question is very powerful <laughs> very powerful question. Do I know much about his background um I will say clearly that the leadership of the uh, legislative mean, arm, whether the house or the Senate, in terms of their role, their role revolves around eight guiding principles the first one is ability to set legislative agenda Uh, this person that Tinubu is uh, pushing um, i'm not sure he had been very influential in bringing key agendas that will ultimately improve the well-being of the have-nots and then the working poor in the country, the well-being in terms of whether it's security or anything, I'm not sure he has advanced that in the last, um, I'll call it in the last maybe 10 years or even 20 years, if you want to go by, <laughs> by how long he has been, he had old legals in his throat. The second bit is around facilitating the legislative process, which is about lawmaking. Um, in terms of overseeing debates, making sure those debates are actually well tailored, meaning that you don't begin to adapt personalities when you're debating, you make sure that you stay clear to the point. In truth, these are people that have one way or the other promoted ethnic disunity in the country. I mean, just to use the word and because again, remembering what happened during the election period and even before the election and subsequently after the electionary period those actions raise a whole lot of questions around ensuring that the legislative process does not exclude some people but that's not been the case the third one is about building consensus again there are question mark around how they perceive other people from certain ethnic groups and then how you bring people together within, except maybe people within your own group's political circle. You have to know how to negotiate very well, and then you have to understand the concept of programming compromise to ensure that the agenda of people begins to actually be the agenda agenda of the people, what the people need comes to become the agenda of the legislator. Then more importantly, you you must represent that legislative body, not just within Nigeria, also outside so that people look at you and then they can aspire especially for young people but unfortunately what we noticed i mean lagos now you can i remember doing the uh, doing the lockdown you have people roaming around the street breaking breaking houses they call them one million boys abcd lagos is now in that mood right so ability for you to snatch ballot boxes re election makes you a leader in the country i mean it doesn't represent, <laughs> is that what we are going to sell to the world? Is that what we want to sell to kids? And so there are question mark around that. And then you could talk about the resources of the legislators, management, there are question mark around transparency, accountability in that space. You could talk about full stream transparency, accountability in government. There are big question mark around that. More importantly, the person of the strategy. But again, your strategy must be at the forefront. I mean, you must put people at the edge, head of your of your strategy, that's not the case. So back to your question, Michael, the truth is that if you see what happened, I mean, if you go back and you look at what happened during the election period, and then the product of those horrible situation where people were beaten up, when people were prevented from voting, any product that you get from that system, I don't think these eight key principles that I've highlighted, you can get it from that person. Anyone that's, even, I remember the former president, uh, when people say his election was, but he had to come out to admit publicly, yeah, that the election that brought me on board was actually not transparent And he had gone ahead to set up a committee to begin to, I mean, begin to correct those things. Even at that, there were legitimacy question about it. So I don't, I'm not sure how the anointed person brought in Ubu where they were writing results the person he has, when they were writing and marking up results, how the anointed person will come to fall and then will begin to ship the country. I don't think that will happen. And as such, in terms of your question, Michael, the background of that person, I'm sure the background has absolutely no, no bearing. It's not about the number of schools you've gone to. It's not about the degree you've accumulated. It's not about the total number of people you have given money and out. It's about the integrity of the person itself. And based on my own perception, based on what I've seen and based on experience that I've had over the years, I'm not sure those key eight legislative uh, points that I made that you can get it from this man uh, that the the president-elect or select, either way you want to put it, whether it's next elect I'd push forward and I saw your question mark over that.
0: Thank you, Otiku. I've got one more question, which is with regards to the Southeast. As Phoenix said, the general political consensus or view was that it was the turn of the Southeast to produce the president, but that did not happen for a variety of reasons. Now, the APC has produced a southwest president-elect. They want to zone the Senate presidency to somebody from the south-south, and they want to give the speaker slot to somebody from the northwest. So it means, in effect, the top four positions in the hierarchy will exclude the southeast. In your view, is that, is that fair?
2: Well, I personally, I care less about uh, the uh, uh, whether the speaker is coming from the south, east or is coming from the north, east or the northwest. It's not because, again, the speaker cannot ship agenda. The big question mark that Nigeria needs to answer is that can any Nigerian aspire to the highest office in the land, in the constitution of the country. The answer is yes, but the political block, in collusion with IMEC, had prevented that from happening, and that is the, that's the biggest topic. The political block, not only that, elite that benefit from that political system, in collusion with the Nigerian police. And then INEC had colluded together to prevent that from happening. And that is the problem. Now, whether you bring a speaker from the Southeast to pacify people in the Southeast is of no material to me as a person. The truth is that what happened on the election day itself is testimony. And it's a testament that this country, again, I repeat, the Nigerian police, again, I used to call the Nigerian police one of the organized terrorist and crime organizations in the world. They are notorious for being a they, They've always been at the other end of the law. They've never been known to actually promote the essence for which government was established, which is actually pursuit of happiness, ensuring their sanity, ensuring their security of life. They've never been there. They've always been at the end of it, creating commotion. They've colluded with INEC and they've colluded with some political class and then some elite, whether industrialists or whatever, we want, to, to actually prevent the will of the people from happening. I personally believe that Nigerians had voted in without to be president. Regardless of what people say, I may be wrong, I may be right, but on the day of the election, that was the perception I had. And then we saw the massive collusion that happened. And then they produced this. So, regardless of what they do after this time, it's of no it's not no, it's no material to me. I'm not interested in whether you go and find another APC person uh, from the southeast. The person is inconsequential as far as I'm concerned. So uh, the only thing is to just keep looking at the court system and hope that the judiciary do the right thing. And that's exactly where I keep my faith.
0: Thank you, Atiku. And let me go to Phoenix. Phoenix, I have one question on this topic that I need, that needs answering. A lot of the political commentary with regards to Tajuddin Abbas, who is the person the APC has nominated for speaker, seems to revolve around his ethnicity. They say he's Northwestern, I think from Kano or Kaduna, but there's the allegation that somehow his mother is Yoruba, and therefore it means he's not a pure northerner, whatever that means. Um, how? What is this new purity test that seems to have entered into our politics that once your mother or father is from a different ethnic group, then somehow you're no longer purely from that state? How did we get here, Felix? We,
1: we, we got here by allowing... Uh, the barbarians to not only get to the gates, but make it all the way to the capital and you know take over entirely. Um, we got here um, in 2015 when people actually thought that a a a a, a, a dictator. Who had done nothing to improve himself who was somebody clearly known to be an, an ethnic supremacist could actually come in and bring positive outcomes and therefore we ended up with eight years under the most divisive ruler that we've ever had and and that's what opened the door to all of these things that were you know true, yeah, true, true. Even though we always had the, our differences and we always had people who were determined to use those differences, sinner heads always p- seemed to prevail. We did it, never boiled over. But in these in, in eight years, and particularly in the last few, couple of years, we've seen this come to the fore and we've seen people behave this way. And it got to a head. During this election cycle, again, I repeat, you know, when you ha- when we ended up with this same fate t- ticket, that was where it all started to come from. And and then you also had uh the PDP who who had all who have zoning in their constitution, but decided to go against that because they believed that a a Southerner could not, or so, I mean they were being asked to zone to the southeast, they felt for expediency's sake it was better for them to zone to the north, to have a northerner replace a northerner, a full animal and replace a full animal. And then you had APC obviously do their same fate ticket and, and and so on. So and and then we go we come to the elections that we saw in Lagos where <laughs> a Lagosian, as Lagosian as you can ever be. You know, who can trace his history for, for 200 years was being told that uh, he wasn't Legotian enough or not Yoruba enough because his mother is Igbo and he has chinedu doing his name. So I'm not surprised that this, I mean, if they could if they could get away with doing this, you know, in spaces where this would never have been allowed to take root, what to stop them from, from continuing to do it? So the, the what's happening to Tajuddin Abbas is is right up there alley, and I'm not surprised. And it just tells us how much trouble Nigeria is in, and 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 the and it's just starting. You're just seeing the 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 um, the crackling of the of the fire. It hasn't yet burst into flames, but very soon we'll have a conflagration because this these are the things that that. That met, metastasizes into what you saw in Rwanda with Hutus and tipsis and all those kinds of things. When you when you start having you know people being othered and and uh, and you know this this is now becoming almost mainstream. I mean, I'm still holding out hope that the more we talk about it, the more we get people emboldened to push back against it. But this is this, these are the people who are. Leading the country, and and, um, and we have a pliant press who's not holding them to account. So that's that's what's really happening at this point in time. But you know, well-meaning Nigerians have to continue to make the case that this is not the Nigeria we want. This is not this doesn't represent us, and we'll continue to speak against this despicable set of people who do anything um, to get to, to get power for their own ends. That's what it is.
0: Thank you, Phoenix. Now, just hold on, because we are going to our next topic, and I want to start with you as well. Peter Obi and Atiku Abubaka have had their first day in court challenging Bola Tinubu's declaration as the president-elect. Now, the first question for you, Phoenix, is are you are you happy with the pace at which this these suits are proceeding do you think that they'll they could make them move faster because ideally a lot of people are saying this should have been resolved before may twenty nine they don't understand why it's it's moving at such a slow slow pace what what do you think phoenix
1: well i i i mean i've not seen a i've not seen a, an election petition that um that was wrapped up before um, the, the, the person declared by INEC was sworn in. So I was not in any way expecting that to happen, especially not in this one that is as hotly contested as it is. But for me, I mean, the point still remains that the election tribunal has a limit. It, it, I mean, it is, it is coded into, into the law that the case must be resolved um, I think within 180 days so it doesn't matter whether to me as far as I'm concerned I mean and I think a lot of people are new to the process and they're actually hoping that Otinuku doesn't get sworn in and blah blah, blah. I think it would be wishful thinking to expect this tribunal to, to wrap the case up in, <laughs> in three weeks um, and so for me it doesn't matter what matters is it, the whole discussion all the way up to the Supreme Court cannot go beyond November this year. It's coded into law. And that for me is what I'm looking to, So let the case run its course and let the right conversations be had. That That's what people should focus on rather than trying to push an issue that I mean, there's no precedence for it. And, and I don't see how that changes this time around.
0: Thank you, Phoenix. My second question is I believe it's Atiku Abubakar, who's the presidential candidate for the PDP. He has made an application to the courts requesting that the trial be publicized so that, I mean, live streamed, so that people who are sitting at home can watch the proceedings live. On TV, in your view, is is that a good idea, or do you think it's it's a bad idea?
1: It's a great idea. What's what? What does the judiciary have to hide? This is a case that matters to may uh, all Nigerians. I mean, this is is a landmark case because we had a landmark election. This was the first time we had um, three front runners. We had, um, you know. We clearly have a president having declared with less than, what was it? making now, if I remember, less than a third or, of the votes or something like that, or less than 40% of the votes. So there's, this is clearly something that a lot of people have interest in. And so, I mean, it should be transparent. It should be, if I mean, in this scenario, you don't want anything that people can look back and say, Oh, they kept they hid it from us. They did some, you know, mago mago and all of that. Live stream it. Let people follow. You know, let's. I mean, experts. You know, as every as everything happens as they proceed, let people learn, understand. Let there be let there be faith in the judicial process. That's that's the only way that this can land well. So, I think it's a great idea, and I highly recommend that. Uh, the judiciary, I mean, the election tribunal, if they are the ones that have to make the call, that they allow that to happen.
0: Thank you, Phoenix. Now, my third question before I go to Atiku is with regards to Obi's case. I presume you've read his pleadings. Do you think he's made a strong case that the election should be set aside? Yes, I believe he's
1: made. I believe he's made a strong case. I mean, he's made he's made a case on a number of grounds, made a number of pleas, um, and I think. I mean, all of them have merits, um, and I think um, at this point in time, now to the election tribunal to to make sure they they address the different points and they, they make sure that the point of law. Or basis for any um, decisions that they make are clear. I think there are clear constitutional issues that need to be resolved. I've been saying this for a, a long time. The issue of the FCT is is a matter that needs to be to be resolved. I think the I mean the the case the pleas that he's made about you know um, certain states where the INEC declared results are different from what is on IRev, so that I mean, I, I mean, and then of course the more scandalous one about the eligibility of uh, Tinubu and Shettima. Um, I mean, Shetima, being that he was already nominated for Senate and then was nominated for the for the vice presidency, we should disqualify both of them. And then of course Tinubu's drug asset a drug, uh, drug-linked asset forfeiture in the U.S., which under any circumstances should render him ineligible to run. Um, so I think he's made the right c- cases that he needs to make. And then it, it's now up to them to buttress the point and, and make sure um, at doing the tribunal that they, they provide the... Uh, whatever is required to to follow up on that. So, yeah,
0: absolutely. Thank you, Phoenix. Atiku, so my, my first question to you is, with regards to the judges themselves, a number of prominent Nigerian lawyers, including the senior advocate, Olisa Obakoba, have made the statement that They are not quite confident that the judges are going to deliver justice. Olisai in particular said in the normal practice of law, you should be able to look at the law, look at past rulings, and then give legal advice to your client based on those things. But he's saying that when it comes to the Nigerian Supreme Court, you can look at what the law says, you can look at past rulings, but even you don't have faith that the ruling they're going to deliver this time will go in accordance with what is established in law or past precedent. And a number of people have said that is quite worrying when we're at a stage where nobody knows what the courts are going to uh, say. So do do you share Olisa's concerns about these judges, uh, Samuel? Yes, I think uh, we've had, I mean, if you look
2: back... um, I recall uh, doing the petition against uh, Boali in 2019 uh, that Afidavit and so we've had quite interesting judgments in Nigeria. Uh, you never know what you expect. I remember Osho's uh, election. I mean, elect, the the, the tribunal, the election tribunal. I think is 2000, the one before this. I can't pick the year um, where. A petition was actually dismissed on the basis that the judge was not present. And so, there are the technicalities of the law. Again, technicalities of the law is a funny development. It's something that interestingly is becoming very rampant in Nigeria. And if you try to look at the whole essence of uh, justice, where judiciary it got its name for, why technicalities can be important. But when you begin to when you begin to throw away that, and you substitute that for uh, you substitute justice for technicalities, that there are big question mark I think this whole thing started with the Amish case, where the Supreme Court overruled a population, the entire River State, and then elected and decided within themselves to make a government without getting the vote of people. And they've done it multiple times. I mean, we know him most states, where they came out. And they passed an interesting judgment. <laughs> One of the most interesting and um, funny judgments that you can never pick up from. And we've known their big allegations that the judiciary themselves are neck deep in corruption. And so the trust, you know, historically, when you have justice of the Supreme Court, there are people that you look up to there are people that, you know, I mean, one way or the other, they carry integrity, even during the military role. But one way or the other, they tend to be degrading and then follow, I mean, falling in line. Uh, they've falling in line with, uh, I, mean, I mean, to use the word lose the people have lost trust in that system. I think that's one of the key reasons why I also agree uh, with Phoenix that this tribunal should actually be made public. Let's see the logic of the argument being presented. And so people can make up their mind before judgments are passed. I think with that, we may be able to look at it logically, why ABCD is happening, and why not CBD? So Michael, to your question, yes, me, myself, sometimes you look at the justice, you don't know what to expect. We've seen funny, funny judgment all over the place, and then there are key allegations, there are counter-allegations. I remember even, you know, if you go back, I've been accused. I remember the old saga where uh, the transcript, right, the conversation between a appeal court Justice, Justice uh, what's his name, and the APC then this year, was actually made public, and that put a dent uh, to the, I'll call it the trust that people have in the judiciary. So, We'll wait and see. Let's hope that this um, President of Supreme Court Justice, I'm not even looking at the appeal court because I know anything the appeal court does uh, could be overruled. So wait for the Supreme Court. We'll sit it out and then see what happens after that.
0: Thank you, Atiku. Then my second question is the Oshun, the Supreme Court recently declared of noadelake as the rightful winner of the Osho elections and from my reading of the case they said they seem to rely on the evidence in the bevas so do you think that case will have any bearing on how they rule in this new Peter o. B. case this will this will be suit or this will be article suit
2: I think uh, the suit is a little bit more clearer uh, compared to what you have in show state. In the case of Obi, uh when you look at your B article uh, case itself, it writes on a whole lot of things. In fact, you don't need <laughs> you don't need beavers to tell you that be a word in river state. But INEC, the evidence within INEC porter shows clearly that you are but the result that Mahmoud declared, funny enough, actually flew from where we don't know. And showing massive disconnections. And I'm not sure Mahmoud had time before declaring the election to actually pick up the beavers and assess what is inside that beavers, right? And then before he came up with his own fictitious with why it's important to think of the beavers again and say, okay, evidence are being stored in the beaver. But remember, carefully, I think I'd gone to the court and then I think they got a judgment one way or the other. I mean, they got, a, I mean, they got an order to wipe out all the memories of the beavers going into the, uh, into the gubernatorial elections, if I recall very well. And there is a whole lot of big question marks. But that said, I will say that, yeah, there are a lot of uh, things that are happening. If you look at the new electoral hat, compared to what we've had in the past, this is a new law. So people should not look at the precedent of what has happened before this time around. I think the first big case that this new electoral hat uh, will come to play is the one with Oshun State. So a lot of reference can be drawn from the Oshun case. Personally, I've not read the judgment. I've not seen the full-blown. I always like reading and then trying to actually read everybody's argument, the thinking, so that one understands understand the thinking of the Supreme Court Justice. Uh, It's important to understand it. Uh, For instance, if you look at the thinking of the uh, Supreme Court Justice, the present Supreme Court Justice, you look at the thinking of Onogi, based on the judgment they passed in the the past, we could logically think about how they think about things. Um, And it's a number game. So if you have... uh, Seven Supreme so Court Justice adjudicating on the matter and you read through each of their judgments that they passed in the past, that they've actually submitted in the past. We could draw inference from that to say, okay, this is the way this person thinks logically that logic is compromised. Uh, for now, I've not read the ocean state judgment, but we we'll wait and see. I don't think the ocean state, I mean Ushun, Ushun electoral tribuna, we said president. I think the presidential elections itself. Be the one that sets precedent for other things to come. And personally, I'm very hopeful that the judiciary will do the right thing. Because if they fail to do the right thing, definitely uh, we see what happens after that. So it will not come out of my mouth before I'm accused of saying things
1: that's not.
0: Thank you, Atiku. Now, my final question, which I'll put to Phoenix, is. Phoenix, a number of people have been issuing threats saying that if Bolatinibu is, is is if his elections are cancelled this will lead to anarchy and this will be an attempt to annul the elections after what happened to MQ Abiola in 1993 so how, how do you respond to this Phoenix yeah
1: Nicholas, and and they are a pointer to the fact that people know that they do not have um, um, they do not have factual or moral basis for the victory that they claim. And that's why they're trying to whip up sen- ethnic sentiments which they've been doing, I mean, since the election and, and trying to rile up the their base, to you know to try to hold on to something that is ill-gotten. There's no comparison. There's no comparison between you know, what happened during um, to MKO Abiola's mandate and what will happen if the courts decide that yes, the petitions that have been put before them have merit and, and therefore this election has been falsely declared there's no I mean there's no comparison so number one we're not in a military role where somebody annulled an election via f- fiat it is going to go through a, a court I a mean, court of law and and that's the essence of democracy and this is not by any means the same as what we saw in 1993 which was widely acclaimed as a free and fair election. This election by all parameters, by all reports, all observers have said that this is the most fraudulent election we've ever had. So what's the basis for for comparison? And then to to the threats that they are making, they're joking. Because we know that there are Yoruba people who will not accept the nonsense that they are saying? There are several Yoruba people. I mean, Afeni Ferry, the Apex, I mean, the, um, the um, what's it called, the preeminent Nigerian sociopolitical organization, was not in support of the Tinobu candidacy and supported Obi. So, will those same Afeni Ferry? I mean, and their supporters join in any <laughs> drama. If Tinubu is, uh, is uh, his so-called uh, election, I mean, victory is overturned, then let's talk about the obedience who we know very well cut across a wide swath of, of the country. So for me, it's just people who are clutching at straws. They know very well that they they... They have no legitimacy. They have no, so they can, I mean, they can try and say whatever they like, but it's not going anywhere. Our focus needs to be on, on the courts and the judiciary must make sure that they, they do their part to protect this democracy. They must, again, to Artiku's point, they must eschew any nonsense, technicality. They must listen to the facts of the case. They must follow our constitution and they must they must give judgment in a way that Nigerians will accept that yes, if judgment has been freely given. It doesn't matter if they come up with sufficient legal basis to tell us that yes, this guy won election. We'll accept and move on. That's what democracy is about. So, all these ones that are making noise and treads
0: that one is for their pockets. Thank you, Phoenix. Well, our time is up. So, first of all, I must thank Phoenix again for co-hosting. Thank our guest, Samuel Atiku, for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. And last but not least, I must thank our listeners for being loyal and staying true to the podcast. But until the same time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days to everyone.
1: Thanks, Michael, and thanks, hatiko for joining us. Thank you, listeners, and uh, have a great week, everyone.